Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. We are in a presidential election year and have not just one, but two incumbent presidents seeking support from voters to occupy our nation's highest executive office a second time. This hour, we're going to try to put aside, to the extent we can, the daily presidential campaign news that we digest here regularly and analyze on River to River and other programming here on IPR in order to view our current election through a historical lens going back well, over 40 presidents, well over 40 presidents, to dig into the history of U.S. presidents running for re-election. What are the advantages incumbents have? What burdens do they typically carry when vying for another four years? What challenges do they face that are typically not faced by non-incumbent uh, presidents, uh, say, or candidates, I should say, of course, uh, as we get farther into the hour. And once we have a bit of our historical framework established, uh, we want to tackle the question, broadly speaking, what all this may tell us about this year's election, the upcoming general election for 2024, and with two incumbent presidents competing for a second term. With us for the entire hour, Tim Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. So nice to see you again in our studio, Tim. Good to be with you, Ben. Donna Hoffman joins us from the University of Northern Iowa campus, where we have our IPR Cedar Falls studio, Professor of Political Science at UNI. Donna, welcome to you. Happy New Year, Ben. Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, listeners, join us with your questions, your comments focused on presidential incumbency, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Tim, uh, you'll be sort of uh, setting the foundation in the 18th, 19th centuries. Donna, uh, more of her expertise, I'm guessing, more into the 20th and 21st centuries. So start us off, Tim Walsh. Set the scene for us. What do we need to know at the beginning of this conversation? Well, what we need to know, first of all, is that uh, when the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, there wasn't anything that specified how long an individual who was elected president would stay. And so George Washington, of course, ran for president in 1788, became president in 1789, and then chose to run again for president, serving two terms. And that became something of a tradition. But the first president who chose to run for a second time and was refused, of course, was his successor, John Adams, who ran for president in 1800 and uh, lost the election. Uh, and uh, somewhat bitter about it, to a good friend and colleague, his vice president, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and that set the stage for this constant question of, well, is the incumbency really valuable when you're running for president again? So f throughout the 19th century, we had a number of, of men, of course all men, who chose to run for president uh, but were refused. And the second, sadly, 
was John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, uh, who ran for president in 1828, refused, lost to Andrew Jackson. He had previously lost the popular vote in 1824. So he was on thin ice, as it was in his presidency, mm -hmm. did not win re-election in 1828. The next was uh, Martin Van Buren, who was the vice president for uh, Andrew Jackson, who uh, suffered the slings and arrows of a bad economy in 1837. And so he lost to William Henry Harrison, who had the sad distinction of serving only 30 days as president of the United States. Going on from there, you go up to the, uh, the, the most interesting uh, a series of, of, of uh, contests, and that was in the 1880s and early 1890s when first Grover Cleveland wins the presidency in 1884 and then loses the presidency in 1888, being refused a second term to Benjamin Harrison, then runs again in 1892 and defeats Harrison. So that election in 1892 was the first time you had two incumbents running against one another, Harrison The and first Cleveland. time, and is the only other time? The only other time. Uh, we don't know where uh, history will take us, but right now there is only one contest between two incumbents. Uh, and then the last one of the 19th century, or actually into the 20th century, I should say, that I want to mention before we get into presidents who we know of, uh, is William Howard Taft, who ran for president. He, he won in 1908. Uh, but lost in 1912 because there were three candidates. And that's one of the issues we should mm -hmm. talk about, and that is when an incumbent is running for re-election uh, and there's more than just one opponent, uh, he can really be in trouble. And that was the case with William Howard Taft, who has the uh, uh, ignominy of having finished third, even though he was an, an incumbent in the election of, of 1912, like mm -hmm. losing to uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party and then uh, Woodrow Wilson. So we've had a tradition of the 45 or so, 47, 46 men uh, who've served in that office. Uh, I think 20 have won a second term. 11 have sought a, uh, a second term but have been refused. And then there are assortment of men who chose not to run for a second term. Yeah, a, a couple of notes here. You talked about George Washington at the outset. Yes. And uh, we, at least from from my uh, history, we... George Washington could have easily been elected to a third term. Well, and in fact, no individual after, no candidate or president after George Washington chose to run for more than two terms uh, until, until, of course, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and, and so Roosevelt not only ran for a third term, but he ran for a fourth term. And then we changed the Constitution after Roosevelt's mm -hmm. death to rec only allow an individual to run for two terms. Mm -hmm. um, sh should we uh, – a caller reminding us uh, that we have – perhaps we have to refine the way we're talking about incumbent because we have one current office holder who is the incumbent. Is Trump a former president or is he an, an incumbent? Technically not an incumbent. No, technically, of course, he's not an incumbent. I suppose what we need to say is we only have two incidents – uh, well, we only have one incident right now where a former president ran against a, uh, a, a sitting or an incumbent president. And yeah. that, of course, is the Cleveland-Harrison yeah. uh, conflicts uh, or contests. Uh, if it happens again going forward with President Trump, former President Trump and President Biden, that would be the second time where we would have okay. 
Thanks to that caller for for making uh, getting that clarification out there, Donna. You're you're sitting in the wings there. Come on in, uh, listening to the the early history of uh, incumbents running for re-election. Um, what do, do you think needs to be mentioned as we start off this conversation? Well, going back to the Washington example, you know, he set the, that precedent. Uh, not a, a hard and fast rule, but a precedent. Right? We did have some uh, people consider running for third terms before Franklin Roosevelt actually did that. Um, and then it's codified. And so that kind of changes the nature of uh, the presidency in, in some ways as well. When we get Franklin Roosevelt in a time of the Great Depression, in the time of World War II, um, asking the people for additional terms beyond that, that notion of a precedent. Um, and then once we get into the 20th century, right, we know the presidency changes for a number of different reasons. Uh, and, and we talk about the modern presidency in particular, where the United States uh, doesn't retreat on the world stage. We had technological innovations. We have polling, polling in particular being uh, important later in our discussion about incumbency um, here as well. Uh, and then presidents really becoming more center stage. In the 19th century, government, U.S. government was really about Congress. Um, the presidents that most people remember from the 19th century are the ones that really kind of uh, stood out for um, dominating Congress. But the norm was that Congress dominated. And Congress, of course, is in Article um, One of the Constitution. But today, uh, many people think about presidential elections and everything politically revolving around that. And that still actually does us a disservice. Um, but as we know, right here we are in the second day of 2024, and we're talking about that election. Not the congressional elections, that presidential election. So presidents really have... Uh, evolved into this, and that's one of the reasons why, in particular in political science, we talk about different presidencies, but in particular that modern presidency, starting essentially with Franklin Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. So, Donna, we want to get into the advantages and disadvantages that incumbents have and dig a little bit deeper into that. What are, because we at least to my mind, we typically think of the the advantages, but there are disadvantages. What let, let's focus on, on the advantages first of all, Donna. Uh, what does an incumbent have uh, that uh, someone who's never held the office or is not currently holding the office uh, have? Well, they are president, right? And especially in this modern age, when Americans think of American government as centered on the presidency, which again is is really not how they should think of it, but is how they do it. You're the president, and it's better to be president than to not be president in this sense. And so you have lots of things that come with being president that puts you in the public eye. Uh, and so you can decide to come to Cedar Falls, Iowa, and do an event as president. And maybe that event is really a nonpartisan awarding of some kind of federal grant to the city or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. The congressional delegation comes, people come, you're the president, the local media will cover it. Local media tends to give presidents uh, more positive um, uh, coverage than the national media does. And so that's just an example of how you are president and what you decide to do and what you decide not to do um, is going to be reported on. And you have various advantages, as we've seen, you know, Congress pass uh, various um, the infrastructure bill, for example, earlier uh, in the year the, in the previous year. Um, you know, that's an opportunity. It was bipartisan. Biden can go around the country, appear in localities, sometimes with Republican members of Congress, sometimes with Republican members of Congress that actually voted against that bill. Mm -hmm. But they're talking about a project, right, and something that benefits that constituency. So being president, being the incumbent, 
means that you have the advantages of, of that, you know, being the center of attention. But you also have other things that you can do also. You can make policy. Presidents make policy um, outside of the congressional structure, obviously, with uh, uh, using executive orders, proclamations, memoranda, things that they do in directing the federal bureaucracy that um, are policy, right? They have the force of law. And so presidents can sometimes attempt policy changes through those unilateral means that they maybe can't get in uh, Congress, but it gives them an advantage. They can show the public, here's what I've done. Uh, And maybe it's even unilateral in this sense, but a president can say, you know, maybe Congress isn't acting. Obama was really good at this. Oh, Congress isn't acting here. I'm going to do this. Donna, we have to take a short break. Uh, Donna Hoffman and Tim Walsh stand by, and maybe Donna will get that clicking out of your line (laughs) after we take this break. Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, of course, uh, one of our political um, analysts here, professor of political science. Tim Walsh, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Uh, This hour, the history of incumbent presidents uh, seeking another term. Uh, Later in the hour, more of a focus on what all this historical framework may tell us about the election this year. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. With us today, presidential scholar and political scientist Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, uh, presidential historian Tim Walsh, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in uh, West Branch. And uh, this hour, we're talking about the history of incumbent presidents seeking another term, uh, what they may tell us about the upcoming election. Um, we have uh, an incumbent running for re-election uh, this term. We also have a former president uh, running for, uh, we, we presume, we don't know if he'll be the nominee, uh, but we presume uh, uh, as of this point that uh, it will be a rematch of, uh, of the last uh, presidential election year, but we'll see what happens. So we're talking about incumbency, the advantages and disadvantages, and, and before the break, uh, Donna Hoffman was laying out the advantages that incumbents have in terms of, you know, no matter what you do, wherever you go, you because you are the office holder, you are the president, the media follows you, uh, and you can go to any state or anywhere in the world and get media attention. Also, Donna pointed out, uh, making policy. You have the power of the presidency to, to make policy. So, so with those in mind, uh, Tim Walsh, what other advantages do incumbents have? Well, Donna did a terrific job of, of touching on, on the major elements of, of the advantage of being president, and I just want to add to that. The fact that I think the American people generally um, embrace stasis, they, they, the, the status quo, so that if an individual has been president, we're referring to them as president, the, the need to change has to be very compelling. So there's a resistance, I think, to change initially, and that gives the incumbent an advantage. Another very distinct advantage generally, although not in every case, and certainly not in the cases when somebody doesn't win that second term, is usually 
the president uh, goes into the election with a united party uh, behind his administration, behind his policies going forward. So there isn't the fractious uh, conflict that you see uh, with, uh, within a party with candidates fighting each other, which can weaken uh, any individual candidate. So those are two additional advantages. Uh, and uh, just to build on Donna, what Donna said, too, is the president of the United States has a has a way not only of just going to uh, a, a location and, and announcing a bridge or a, a construction project or whatever, but also being the individual who represents the country in, in times of grief or crisis. We, some people will remember a photograph of, of Governor Chris Christie, a Republican, being embraced Barack, by President Barack Obama after Hurricane Sandy, the idea of compassion and consolation. All of those are advantages. The image of the person who is president of the United States, that Air Force One flies into that location. So incumbency has its benefits. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to some of the um, uh, disadvantages here. Donna, start start us off there. Uh, Tim mentioned the status quo, that we tend to like the status quo, except when enough people in the country do not like what's happening. You know, you always have the polling question, do you like the direction of the country, some such polling question. And so that can work to an incumbent's disadvantage, uh, Donna? Well, certainly, uh, you know, one of the advantages is being an incumbent, but the flip side of that is one of the disadvantages could be being an incumbent, (laughs) especially in times of economic peril uh, or economic downturn. And also, if your party has been in power for too long. So, when political scientists model uh, presidential elections, one of the things that um, we now include in that typically is uh, something that we kind of call the time for change factor. And so being an incumbent is a positive uh, for that first reelection. Um, obviously, the president stand for a second reelection, but the party can. And so here's something that George H.W. Bush uh, was encountering in his, what was seen by some, a third term of President Reagan's right as he runs for re-election. He was denied that. Um, and in part, some people, some voters will feel like the Republicans have been in power too long. It's time for a change. Hillary Clinton had uh, an element of this factor in her run after Barack Obama's two terms. So incumbency there, thinking of it kind of as in-party incumbency, uh, can be a negative in that sense as well. And then, of course, if the economic times have, um, have had a downturn, that can be a drag on an incumbent president as well. Because if voters engage in what political scientists call retrospective voting, uh, then Uh, Ronald Reagan encapsulated this in 1980 in his run against the incumbent Carter, right? Are you better off now than you were four years ago? He's asking voters to look back uh, over the past four years. And retrospective uh, looks here are typically hinging on the economy. Um, And he was asking voters to give him a chance because for many, uh, economic times were still in 1980 pretty perilous. And so being an incumbent during a period that Gerald Ford encountered, that Carter is going to encounter uh, after his first term, um, can prove to be drags on a re-election effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, you've mentioned several presidents. We have a bit of archive audio from each of the presidents that you mentioned. Let's go to, to, to the Carter concession speech. Jimmy Carter, as you mentioned, not winning his re-election, conceding to uh, Ronald Reagan in November of 1980. Uh, Here are some remarks that uh, Jimmy Carter um, gave supporters in in D.C. following that defeat. 
have a deep appreciation of the system, however, that lets people make the free choice about who will lead them for the next four years. About an hour ago, I called Governor Reagan in California, and I told him that I congratulated him for a fine victory. I look forward to working closely with him during the next few weeks. We'll have a very fine transition period. I told him I wanted the best one in history. I have been blessed, as only a few people ever have, to help shape the destiny of this nation. In that effort, I've had your faithful support. Okay, uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980, uh, uh, conceding to Ronald Reagan, who became a president and won re-election in uh, 84, go on to serve in 88, then his vice president winning one term, but then being defeated uh, in his re-election bid. So uh, as a presidential historian, Tim Walsh, comment on, on Jimmy Carter's concession speech, and we have an, a unique vantage point to hear his words uh, there more than just pro forma, this peaceful transition of power now looks different when we a, a, a president who's been defeated celebrates it. There's no question that what Jimmy Carter was doing in 1980 was taking a kind of a high road. He was very bitter about the loss, uh, but he suffered the double whammy, as kind of Donna referred to it, in terms of of the limitations of a presidency, because, of course, he had to run on his record. He had been president for four years, and for folks uh, who are at least of my age or, or about there, we'll, we'll remember the hyperinflation that we had in mm-hmm. the late 1970s. Uh, and then, of course, we had the Iran hostage crisis. So you had an international incident and a bad economy, which was was too much for, for Carter to overcome. That having been said, after he, he uh, you know, ate his humble pie, so to speak, he went out in public and said, I accept the results. I'm going forward. We're going to have a transition. The peaceful transition of power is not something to be taken lightly, and that's what we expect even of incumbents who then are refused a second term. Mm -hmm. Donna, what else comes to your mind when we talk about the the disadvantages? What can play against an incumbent president? Well, there's also, you know, the factor of um, public perceptions. As we're seeing right now, um, public perceptions of the economy um, aren't actually matching up uh, actual economic indicators, and this can happen sometimes um, also in terms of presidential approval, because this can play a role here as well. And so uh, we could go back to George um, H.W. Bush again. Uh, James Carville, who was one of uh, Bill Clinton's um, advisors, was uh, made a, a statement famous in the 92 election. It was, uh, it's the economy, stupid. This was something they put on the wall in their so-called war room. And it's only partially um, the economy there. For George H.W. Bush, there had been a, a mild recession, right? But the economy had actually picked up. The economy was doing better. But the perception of voters, at least in part, uh, was that George H.W. Bush had not done enough on the economy. He'd maybe been too focused on international affairs. And so um, you can have the public perception actually not conforming to the reality of certain indicators being off. And this may be something uh, that we see going into 2024, although it's still too early to tell because 
um, you know, one of the things I want to mention here is that we're seeing lots of polling, horse race polling now in the race that's going to happen in November, regardless of who's in that. Uh, but it's too early to put any stock in that. We know because we study this issue that it is too early to those kinds of polls. And second, that uh, that is, in fact, horse race polling. And the popular vote, as we know, doesn't elect the president. The Electoral College does. And that can be off, as we've seen uh, twice in the last uh, 24 years. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the first um, President Bush, uh, Bush 41. We also know him as uh, George H.W. Bush to distinguish him from his uh, a son here. But let's hear a little bit of archive video, archive audio uh, of uh, President, uh, the 41st President of the U.S., George H.W. Bush, after losing his run for a second term to President Bill Clinton. And, and we want to touch, I know you touched on this earlier, Tim Walsh, there was a third party factor in the 92 election that that, we, that uh, is worth talking about a little bit more. But anyway, uh, George H.W. Bush, some of his remarks from his campaign headquarters in Houston, November 3rd, 1992. Well, here's the way I see it. Here's the way we see it, and the country should see it, that the people have spoken, and we respect the majesty of the democratic system. There is important work to be done. And America must always come first. So we will get behind this new president and wish him, wish him well. And to all who voted for us, voted for me, here, especially here, but all across the country, uh, thank you for your support. And we have fought the good fight and we've kept the faith. And I believe I have upheld the honor of the presidency of the United States. Once again, Tim Walsh, the acrimony of a, a months-long campaign set aside. He's talking about the majesty of our system. Absolutely. I mean, one, one of the things we like to think is that our presidents are patriots, are constitutionalists. They accept the, the uh, uh, voice of the people, so to speak. Uh, we, the people, have spoken. We have chosen Bill Clinton. But in this case, as you made reference to, it wasn't just a, a loss to Bill Clinton, but it was the fact that uh, the presence in the election of Ross Perot, H. Ross Perot, who won, I think, close to 20 percent of the vote, uh, that affected the outcome. And whenever an incumbent faces uh, more than one candidate, uh, it's, it's a sort of an indication of friction within the, the, the body politic, so to speak, the, whether it's economic or, or uh, uh, international. It adds to the uh, uncertainty of, of the election. In that case, George H.W. Bush lost as a result of, of mm-hmm. having Perot in the race. Uh, he also had conflict within his own party. Pat Buchanan ran against him at mm-hmm. the nomination. And when a, uh, an incumbent, and Jimmy Carter, for example, had uh, Ted Kennedy running against him, there's, if there's friction within your own party, uh, that's also an indication that not everything is, uh, is going as well as you'd like to believe it will go. And uh, so we get down the road and who knows exactly what the tipping point. Every single election, every single uh, uh, contest has its own unique points to it. And uh, so it's not quite a science, in, at least from the historian's perspective, as to exactly why an individual doesn't get that second term. I will also say, too, that we should not underestimate the, the power and ability as a, as a campaigner of, of candidates, uh, opposition candidates like Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan, who were spectacular in their ability to uh, uh, draw people to them. Uh, and so that, that uh, charisma and power as a candidate, opposition candidate, 
has an impact on the incumbent. No mm-hmm. matter how good an incumbent is, President Carter was no match for uh, uh, candidate Governor Ronald Reagan. Right, and and we did. You mentioned the Iran, uh, the, the the Iranian hostage yes, situation. Uh, I believe the hostages released the day that Ronald Reagan took uh, took office. They were on the plane on the tarmac in Tehran when Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president, and yeah. the plane took off as soon as he had become president. Now, whether that was coincidence or a, a direct effort to poke at at uh, President Carter. Uh, time will tell. Yeah. Uh, We have a few minutes before we we go to break. Uh, As we kind of finish building this framework of incumbents running for president, and then uh, in our our third segment, focus more on what it means in this particular election year. Donna, what else comes to mind here uh, historically that we need to keep in mind for you? Right. I, I want to just touch on what uh, Tim just said regarding, you know, the idiosyncrasies of any campaign. And it certainly is, uh, you know, your your skill or ability to campaign is certainly an aspect here. Um, but let's go back to that Carter-Reagan um, uh, race in 1980. The Carter administration mounted a covert rescue attempt, and I believe it was in April, um, to rescue the hostages in Tehran. Uh, though there were um, mechanical problems with that rescue attempt. One of the copters crashed in the desert, and it was a a debacle. It was a mess. But let's do a thought experiment here, right? If that rescue attempt had succeeded, Carter, I think, would probably have waltzed to Mm re-election because Reagan had his own um, problems in terms of the campaign related to being seen as a lightweight Um, maybe having a a little bit less experience in some in the international field uh, that he tried to to work on and and did some some work there. So I want to make the point, though, that there are lots of idiosyncrasies here. So political scientists, right, as scientists, we try to model elections, for example. And we know that we can do a pretty good job doing this with three factors. And one of those factors is not how good are you at campaigning, um, it's a, a, an ability in the economy, public opinion, and then a measure of, of incumbency. Now, that doesn't mean that campaigning doesn't matter, but it matters a lot less than some people will think. And it goes to exemplify um, the things that elections uh, can have affect them that we can't predict crises, for example, like the Iran hostage um, example and then the failed rescue attempt. And so, you know, here we sit on January 2nd. Um, wanting to think about what's going to happen in less than a year here, and a lot of things can happen between now and then, even with the candidates that we presume are going to be the nominees at this point. Yeah. It's interesting you you mentioned that uh, failed um, rescue attempt. Uh, Desert One, I think, was the name. Exactly. The, the name. And, and if I'm remembering right, it was uh, President Carter at the time was debating wondering how many helicopters would be sufficient if one went down. Had he had one more helicopter in that group, it, it could have turned out much differently. Without question. You get into that situation of, of kind of what we call counterfactual history. What what would have happened if, if you had different outcomes, and, and how, would, how would history have changed as a result going forward? What's also interesting to, to note, and, and Donna kind of picks up on this, and that is that that uh, the situation was similar in, in President Bush's case, uh, but he actually succeeded with Operation Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. So, But that didn't help him at the end. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll be back uh, with our final segment with Tim Waltz, presidential historian, presidential scholar, and a political scientist Donna Hoffman with us as well as we discuss the history of incumbent presidents seeking another term, what that may tell us about this year's election. 
Uh, That's when we return. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. So glad you could join us in this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, and uh, today, the history of incumbent presidents seeking another term. As was pointed out earlier in the program, 11 incumbents have lost their bids to win re-election, going way back to John Adams and John Quincy Adams, and then uh, ending in the uh, more recent times, of course, George H.W. Bush and uh, Donald Trump losing in, in 2020. So we're talking about the advantages, disadvantages, the challenges of uh, holding office while seeking office uh, again for for another term. Donna Hoffman is with us, uh, as well as Tim Walsh, and uh, let's uh, focus a little bit more uh, drawing on the historical context that both of you have provided for us about uh, the relevancy of uh, what we, the incumbents uh, running for president, Biden in this case, uh, for for what we have in front of us uh, in 2024. Uh, We're having this conversation in early January, uh, and we have many months to go before the general election. From our vantage point, (laughs) and all political analysts will agree, all indications point to a Biden-Trump uh, rematch this year. Uh, Donna, we've discussed this so many times on this program and uh, that, you know, so much of since 2015, our election, presidential election politics are sort of unconventional and busted conventions right and left. Uh, uh, how much of what we've discussed today, Donna, starting with you, is relevant for this election cycle, do you think? Well, it is relevant because we have something that we call the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals of presidential elections. Um, And as I mentioned uh, in the previous segment, right, economic measures is one of those things, uh, public opinion, some amalgamation of presidential approval um, and a measure of uh, incumbency and party. Those are the three most important things that we know. That's the foundation, though. Those are the, the fundamentals. And other things can intervene here those idiosyncratic things and 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 it's kind of you know cliche to say oh every election is important and every election is the most important election of your lifetime um but 2024 is uh, has some very unusual aspects to it so as we mentioned you know coming into the show there was not or we we uh, inferred i think this uh notion there was not a peaceful transition of power um, in 2020. We'd never have that happen in uh, American history, right? There had always been, even when you had bitterly fought elections, a peaceful transition of power. That didn't happen in 2020. So 2024 represents the first election uh, after that, and in a situation where you may have uh, the former president who instigated that on the ballot. So that's unusual. You have the other unusual factor here of Uh, Again, never seen in American history, Uh, a president being under not one count, not two counts, 97 uh, 97 felony counts, um, four different cases, three different jurisdictions uh, in two states and federal uh, courts. And that's going to be taking place. Those illegal actions are going to be uh, taking place during the election season. And that is a vast unknown here uh, as well in terms of how that 
how those events interact with Trump's ability to campaign, with the Republican Party's um, reception of Trump, uh, Republican voters' reception of Trump, as we go through this process. And so we have some vast unknowns here that have never happened in American history uh, that are going to be, I think, quite significant in terms of how this election plays out. Mm-hmm. Tim Walsh. Yes, there's no question that this election, uh, and in fact the candidacy of Donald Trump, is something of a paradigm shift, uh, both because of the the style that he has and his attitude toward the presidency as an institution. Uh, Donna made reference to the fact that Congress is the preeminent branch of government, or at least the way the founding fathers thought of it. Uh, But but, uh, President Trump has elevated the presidency to a a level of of a kind of unitary presidency of, of of, of uh, uh, substantial power, and that that will affect uh, his administration going forward should he be reelected. I think social media and foreign influence too has had a tremendous influence on this election and and the one in 2020 and perhaps 2016 as well. So it's very hard, and certainly from an historian's perspective, it's very difficult to look back on the past and say, "Oh, this is exactly like the elections of the 1880s when you did have a lot of friction between the political parties." Presidents weren't as as powerful as they are today, and uh, we've not had a candidate quite like uh, President Trump running again for office. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don, I wanted to have you address something we, we touched on a little bit earlier, because we have, and I think you called it a mismatch. We have, you know, opinions of a current president not necessarily tracking with what we would say is, for instance, economic data, all right? Those two track differently. We have a much different media environments than um, environment than previous presidents have um, had to, had to deal with. Talk a little bit more uh, about that. Sure. So we know that um, the economy is an important indicator here, an important measure. It's not the only thing that's important. It's not even the most important thing in many cases, but it is important. The economic indicators at this time are trending in a very positive direction for an incumbent president. Um, unemployment is 3.7 percent. Uh, GDP growth in the third quarter of 2023 was 5.2%. That's phenomenal, right? That could be revised upward or downward even uh, in the coming months. Inflation now is down to 3.1%. Uh, the Dow had a new record in December. Um, the S&P is close to that. So uh, interest rates, the Fed has already signaled uh, probably three interest rate declines in 2024. So those indicators are moving in a very positive direction. But Where we want to see, what we want to look at in terms of forecasting elections is looking at June, basically, Um, looking at economic indicators uh, in the second quarter of 2024, typically, um, or from the first quarter to the third quarter, which typically isn't um, available until right before the election. Um, And so those are moving in a positive direction for the current incumbent, Joe Biden. Where there's a disconnect is that his presidential approval is lagging here. Um, he's at 37%, I believe, in the Gallup uh, in, from early November. And that's uh, his low point there. Um, we would think that probably is going to start ticking up. But here's something that's interesting related to presidential pol- polling on presidential approval is that increasingly in our hyper-partisan uh, environment, Partisanship is taking a, a toll here. And so in earlier decades, and, you know, we really kind of start to see a shift in this in the mid-90s, um, you would have a, a partisan of the opposite party on economic indicators might vote for a president of the other party. 
that rarely, rarely happens. We can look at partisans uh, and their voting behavior now, and it's high 90 percent in terms, uh, oftentimes in terms of Democrats voting for a Democratic president and likewise Republicans voting for a Republican president. Um, And so there's less benefit of the doubt given to incumbent presidents based on uh, that notion of hyperpartisan in the environment that we are living in currently. And so that's affecting this. As I think we get closer to, you know, and again, there's an argument to be made that that citizens right now may not be feeling the effects from previous high prices on gas, on food, et cetera, but they might start to feel those by the time, uh, you know, midsummer rolls around, which is when Joe Biden wants that to really hit home. Uh, as long as those economic indicators keep trending in that direction, then uh, that's a, a net positive for him. Mm-hmm. Tim Walsh. Well, Don is absolutely right. In a hyper-partisan election with, a, with an electorate that is being stoked in part by, by certain cable channels and social media outlets, uh, people have chosen sides. And, and the, the contest is essentially for those people, almost the endangered species list, the moderate uh, on the one hand, who maybe live in the suburbs of Philadelphia, we always talk about the suburbs of Philadelphia. Another group who I think uh, need to be uh, uh, sought for is uh, is people who are sort of perpetually dissatisfied. It's kind mm. of the the person who's who's not happy with Joe Biden and not happy with Donald Trump and and needs a place to go. Uh, and that's uh, the concern I think on the part of the Biden administration is. Again, that possibility of a third party, the no labels movement or Joe Manchin or somebody entering the race, which could take votes from the incumbent uh, as opposed to taking votes from the Republican candidate, quite probably uh, Donald Trump. So you, you have these unknowns going forward. Don is absolutely right in terms of the economy. The, the economy is in terrific shape for the incumbent at this time. But Joe Biden doesn't seem to get much benefit from it at this stage. It's also true that the voter is a kind of what have you done for me lately? So it is that June quarter mm-hmm. uh, report that will make the difference. He's not going to get much credit for those first two or three years of his administration. All of that infrastructure money. Forget about that. It's what have you done for me last week. Right. And we do have 11 months before the general yeah. election day here, too. And you mentioned this beforehand um, when we could have and it would be unusual if we would cruise through the next few months and not have big news events. We are on a roller coaster constantly in the last few years. Uh, Donna here, uh, uh, we could have um, a disaster of one kind or another. Uh, You know, uh, we would certainly, uh, you know, uh, it was something on the order of 9-11 or greater, something on the order of COVID uh, as a threat to the nation as well. Donna, those things we can't know, but they can change uh, the dynamics of a campaign very quickly, right? Yeah, they can. Although I, I think, you know, those big, big news events happen, you know, all, all, all the time. Uh, but in our increasingly, uh, our increasing media diet environment that we live in, right, many of those big news events fade, get forgotten pretty quickly, which again, is why October surprises can be a thing. The immediacy uh, of things happening before the election can be a, a factor in that. What the what both campaigns need to do, the Republican camp- campaign, the Democratic campaign need to do going into November is to make sure that their voters are activated. And we know we had really high turnout in 2020. We had high turnout in 2016. 
because voters were very activated. Democrats aren't trying to convert Republicans and vice versa in elections today uh, in this hyperpartisan environment. It's mm. getting your voters out, making sure they don't sit it out because they're disgruntled about some issue or some characteristic of a candidate, but making sure that they actually get out to um, campaign. And sometimes that's where those big news events can maybe elevate or sometimes maybe even depress uh, turnout going into the November election. Right. And Donna, as we've seen in recent elections where uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade has had a significant uh, effect on turnout, we think, don't we, Donna? We do, right? We know where that issue has been on the ballot. It's uh, tended to win, but it's also brought people out to the polls. We also want to not discount um, the notion of what uh, a second Trump presidency would hold. The Trump campaign is being very clear about what they want a second term to look like. Uh, they're not hiding this at all. It's right out there in, the, in, in front of everyone. Uh, related to how he would deal with uh, bureaucratic policymaking, for example. Related to hiring only people who are personally loyal to him, not to the Constitution. Um, the Heritage Institute uh, or the Heritage Foundation has put together a, a document that's uh, called, they call it Project 2025, that documents exactly the steps they think the Trump administration should take. And those are things that align with dictatorial powers in some respects. Trump himself even has been quoted as saying, right, on day one, I'll be a dictator. Um, these things are not unknowns. We know these things. The challenge for the American public is to go into the 2024 election if uh, you know, Trump is, in fact, the Republican nominee, making sure that you know, people understand the stakes of the election because people will have a choice in terms of do they want to have a more authoritarian uh, style presidency because that is a choice. We could, yeah. in fact, do that. So, so, so Donna, you want. see this as less about policy than, well, really the fundamentals of our democracy if, if, if people examine what's happening. They are both about policy uh, and about the fundamentals, because, again, some of this is wrapped up in policy. Um, you know, Trump has stated he wants to, um, uh, you know, deport uh, millions and millions of people. Well, you know, theoretically, that's very difficult to do unless you are taking the law into your own hands in some respects. And so the policy and the political here go hand in hand. And that's one of the things that. Um, it is sometimes difficult, I think, for Americans to conceptualize uh, because of this notion that the backsliding of democracy that we see in lots of countries right now just really isn't happening in the United States or really can't happen here. Um, and so people need to really, citizens yeah. need to do their due diligence in terms of uh, being informed and educated on the issues, the candidates, and even their tactics. Yeah, and not... not not just take comfort in what we suppose are guardrails that have protected this country, this country's democracy for so long. Uh, Tim Walsh. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the, there's a, a perhaps not a false assumption, but nevertheless a, an assumption that, well, the courts will stop uh, uh, President Trump from exercising uh, extra legal authority over uh, uh, over the nation. That is, he, he can't abolish or end the civil service. Well, perhaps he can do that. Or his candidates for for uh, cabinet offices and so forth have to uh, receive approval by the by the Senate. Well, if they're in an acting capacity, they don't. So really, the question for most voters is, what type of government do you want? And it's it's a sort of a, a, a an appraisal of of 
do you feel the vision that Donald Trump and the Republicans have is what you want for the country? Clearly, among certain voters, that is the case. But there's perhaps more who say we're not certain going forward that's the direction they want. Mm -hmm. Donna, we have less than a minute left. Any final thoughts before we uh, head into the bulk of this (laughs) year? I guess I would say, you know, that uh, things are going to speed up. Uh, We have the caucuses in a couple of weeks. Um, You know, voters might want to gird their loins, especially in Iowa, as that onslaught happens. Um, And as we, you know, really start then the 2024 election season in terms of the Republicans at this point choosing their nominee, because, again, it is still early. Lots can happen. Uh, You know, it appears Donald Trump is in a very good spot in terms of winning the nomination. But again, he has uh, multiple, multiple court dates uh, coming up. Uh, One, you know, the day after, for example, in New York, um, the day after the the Iowa caucuses. Mm hmm. Everything uh, uh, points to a very important and uh, interesting election year, uh, Tim Walsh, as we say goodbye here. Without question. uh, You know, historians can't use their tools to tell what the future is going to be. We'd like to think, you know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I'm not sure it's even rhyming at this point. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Tim Walt, presidential historian. Donna Hoffman, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Donna and Tim, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Tomorrow on this program, it's a Politics Wednesday. A federal judge has temporarily blocked most of a new Iowa law on school books and the teaching of gender identity. Just one of the things we'll talk about with Megan Goldberg and Evan Renfro uh, when we have our Politics Day uh, tomorrow on this program. Today's program produced by Danny Gere uh, with help from Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.